want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flying, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound Unsights TV podcast. This is Kate Kulsik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Oh, you know, not too bad. Are you, are you still alive? I'm still alive. Training has commenced. I, I got under 10 minute miles today, which is good, although only five of them. So, you know, baby steps. Well, no, but was that the goal for today? There was no goal for today. The goal is always to not die. <laughs> okay. No, no, I just mean like for mileage. Oh, I, I know what you meant. Okay, I see. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, well, I'm glad to hear that, which means that you are way ahead of where I was in my training for my first marathon. I don't think I got under 10 minute miles for like at least a month, but I'm super slow and always have been. So I don't know if you should really be that excited about being ahead of, of what my schedule was. Yeah, no, I, I've been in, I've been consulting with other marathon with sorry with marathon experts, and uh, I told them what my goals were, and they were like, "You're dumb. That's not gonna, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Scale back your expectations," which which has just emboldened me. Okay, well, you know, what? I I am looking forward to following the saga of Simon's first marathon, um, but uh, we should probably talk a little bit about the the myriad tv and feedback we got this week uh first of all at the end of the podcast happy to welcome back sean coletti former co-host of the televerse to talk carlos with us i know people are looking forward to our eventual avatar and cora dvd show with sean but we thought we should do carlos first it's a bit freakily uh timely uh, yeah, it's absolutely nothing to do with Cora or anything else. But uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a really great uh, miniseries slash essentially very long film from 2010. It won a Golden Globe Award, so also timely. Yeah, it was like a, a confluence of uh, of timeliness. Uh, I'm going to go with the Golden Globe thing, though, because that's way cheerier. Uh, we did also get feedback from Sean, who says, My two cents on Cora. My instinct that should have been glad to see uh, queer representation was completely eclipsed by how tokenistic it felt. He's talking about, the, of course, the finale. But that was the least of the fi- final season's problems. In any case, I'm glad I won't be watching the following. Of course, that's tying back to... He said uh, that if I gave Cora a shot, then he would stop watching the following um, and giving it another view or so. Very, I, I think we're all happy about that, Sean. Uh, he says, kind of looking forward to Better Call Saul, but there aren't any new series here that have me really excited. Broadchurch aired its first episode this week in the UK and did well, ratings-wise. And we heard from a couple of other listeners about that as well. One of the other listeners who uh, dropped us a line about that was Craig's, uh, who also let us know about uh, our our, uh, our boy... Uh, uh, Jonathan Tucker getting cast in Justified for you know getting in at the end of the wire there under the wire. Oh man, I did. Do you did you read the description of his character? No. If, if you haven't, I'm not going to say anything. All I know is uh, it's supposed to be fun. Uh, I, I don't. I, I can't. I, I refuse to get too excited about this, but I'm always happy to see Jonathan Tucker getting work. 
It's very exciting. Um, Sean continues, between Shameless and Vikings, Kate, you should watch Shameless. It's a legitimately great series. It is always a year-end contender. Vikings is good at what it does, but what it does isn't all that interesting unless you don't watch much TV. That's a burn. Uh, what do no, you think? No, that's, that's an... That's an uh, uh, I think that's... I mean, I know that there are some serious TV fans who really like it, but I think that's just because it's... I think, Or rather, I'd say that's mostly because it is involved in an era... And a, and a place and a period of history that no one else really is. So it has some great novelty value, but I'm not sure it has much more than that based on what I've seen. But I might be missing something, but I don't think I am. But I might be, but I don't think so. <laughs> um, also, of course, uh, Sean uh, is co-hosting a, a Banshee podcast for Sun Sight with Les Chapel, a friend of the show, of course. And uh, that's called Under the Hood. You can find that at sundotsight.org. Um, and Sean is going to be out there in L.A. next Wednesday. Uh, Ellen Seppenwall is hosting a Q&A with Amanda Milicevic and uh, Jonathan Tropper, who is the co-creator. Um, they're going to be screening the second episode, and there's a ban- they're going to give out Banshee t-shirts. And Sean's going to be there, and he says if anybody wants to grab drinks afterwards, hit him up on Twitter. He's at Sean Coletti on Twitter. So if you're going to be at the Banshee screening and uh, you want to, to hang, hang out with Sean... Um, former co-host of the Televerse, current co-host of Under the Hood and Mid-Season Replacements. Drop him a line on Twitter. Uh, I wish I, you know, I'm sure that's going to be a lot of fun. Wish I could be there. Augustine says, uh, said at the uh, website in response to our, our thoughts on the, the Daredevil rumblings we'd been hearing. Uh, he says, LOL, have you two ever read a Daredevil comic? The comic is, ex- is extremely dark. Uh, in fact, everything you two brought up, like characters dying, heroin addiction, etc., has happened in the book. So I'm glad the producers of the show are comparing it to The Wire, since that means they will actually be faithful to the source material. Um, and as you said at the website, Simon, um, just because that stuff all fits with Daredevil doesn't mean that we actually think Marvel will let them do it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm seriously doubtful. I mean, I, I, I do think that is way more interesting, Augustine, certainly, but I just don't it's not that I don't think Daredevil is interesting or that I, as a, as a property or that I don't think the the showrunners or creatives uh, could easily tell a very interesting story or go to darker places with it. I just don't think Marvel's going to let them. I will say that if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be Steven tonight. Like if this show doesn't turn out to be interesting, then none of the shows will turn out to be interesting. Yes, very likely. Uh, Augustine continues, uh, as a comic book fan, I kind of like the fact that Marvel is more hands-on, since I've seen what happens when directors are left on their own devices with their brand, you know, the two Fantastic Four movies, the three Punisher films, Elektra, uh, the Daredevil film. Uh, we've had really a few really good ones as well, but really more bad than good, so I can't really blame them in that regard. Uh, by the way, don't you despise the comic superhero genre, Simon? Will it even matter to you if the show is good or not? Um Simon, do you want to take this? I want everything to be good. I'm never rooting for things to be bad. It doesn't necessarily matter to me if it's good or not, but I'm, you know, I, I, I like good. I like for things to be good, even if they're not necessarily for me. I, I am a fan of good things making people happy. I guess. And after Spartacus, you're gonna watch whatever tonight makes. At least for a bit. At least for a little bit. So you really want? I mean. Come on, August. August. Yes, he does want it to be good. Just because, like, there are certain genres that are not—I'm not a fan of. You know, does not mean that I actually. I can't really think of a straight-up genre that I don't care for. But if something's going to be a stupid, sexist action thing, at least it can be a good, stupid, sexist action. It should be thing. the. It should be the best sexist action thing it can be. Absolutely. 
Uh, anyways, so but thank you for for chiming in, Augustine. Because I no, I've never read a Daredevil comic. Simon, have you? Uh, no, I I haven't read a comic period in probably seven or eight years. So so it is good to to get that perspective and find out that it actually does make somewhat of sense that, that they are making that wire comparison, even if we're still dubious about the uh, possibilities of that actually coming to fruition. Um, Chris wrote in to say, uh, just found the Televerse podcast and I've been burning through episodes. Uh, I just haven't listened to the entire back catalog yet, so this email might be moot, and I am not sure if you guys take suggestions on shows to discuss for the DVD shelf, but two that I think are incredibly deserving but highly unlikely to be mentioned are HBO's Oz and MTV's Clone High. So Chris, if you go to soundonsite.org slash DVD hyphen shelf hyphen library, you will see a mostly complete um, catalog of all the DVD shelves that we have done so far on the show, and there's over a hundred of them between um, DVD shelves, and there's a few season spotlights for continuing shows and some some interviews and stuff and special segments. Um, I, it's been a while; it's been a few months since I updated it, but it's got most of the back catalog on there. Uh, so, so if you're, you know, I don't maybe maybe Chris is listening to the weekly reviews too. That would be kind of crazy. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, that would be ridiculous but uh i i will say that there is absolutely nothing unlikely about us doing oz or clone high especially clone high i'm sort of surprised we haven't done that already yeah me too i mean i would love to do either of them first of all because uh, oz is one of those like embarrassing gaps in my tv watching you know there's a few of them uh and of the hbo shows uh, Oz is the one I'm most embarrassed that I haven't seen any of, particularly because I that cast is ridiculous. Um, and Clone High is a show that I really enjoy. I do think uh, he's on to something here uh, in that I don't know that... I say he. Maybe it's a she. I think Chris is on to something here because uh, they are lesser talked about ones. Like when people talk about animated comedies, they don't tend to go first to Clone High. They go to some of the other ones that we've done. Um, they go to Batman, they go to these other ones, but, um, but I think it's a really great show. I know Randy reviewed all of it for us at one point, um, over the summer. And Oz, like I said, people talk about the other great HBO shows before they talk about Oz nowadays. And I think that's a shame. So, uh, yeah, we, we let the guests pick whatever show they want to talk about. And I don't believe either of these have been mentioned by a guest yet, like on their short, short list or what first comes to mind for them. Um, but again, like I said last week, any friends of the show that are out there listening any of our fellow critics and, uh, podcasters out there, we want to talk about these shows. So you should say, you should email us and say, Hey, I'll talk about Oz. And it's also funny that people don't talk about clone high that much considering if I'm not mistaken, it was created by, uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are mm. now everywhere yeah. in all of the places at all of the times. Which is something Chris also continued to say in the email. So, yeah, I, I absolutely uh, excellent taste, Chris. And thank you for listening. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you're, you're listening to this as well. So, uh, but yeah, check out the DVD shelf, DVD shelf library if you want to, you know, have have a complete catalog there. Um, and the last email we have here for this from Carl, who says, Kate and Simon, I'm writing with a strange question. How do I enjoy TV again? When I am involved in a TV series, I'm really engaged in the experience is great. For instance, I just watched The Missing. It was really drawn into the characters and mystery. However, when nothing is on my all caps must watch list, I feel pressured to be watching something really good because there are so many options out there. I know this is just probably a personal quirk, but I almost feel pressure to be watching 
all caps great tv instead of just enjoying the experience of what is on the answer is probably to just take a break and wait for something to capture my attention but i wonder if you had experienced this with the sheer volume of tv to choose from i'm not uh, involved in reviewing or blogging about tv but it almost feels like work to be finding great tv all of the time and i just want it to be enjoyable again uh what do you think simon uh well if it feels like work um that's incorrect <laughs> it's uh i don't th- i mean people try to think of the right way to address this um because it's not really a conundrum i can recall facing before being uh as ever on the critical side as i am oh uh, cause, i can because oh, okay then you go for it because personally i get a kick out of being critical and a, and a jerk about things uh but other people might not might not understand that oh you don't you ever feel pressure on the film side like this to be like yeah you could just watch stupid action movie but there's all of these greats that you if you're going to be a serious fan of film or somebody who really is into film and appreciates it oh but you haven't seen fill in the blank don't you ever feel like pressured you know like like you're not a real critic or you're not a real fan of the genre because there you have this giant list of movies that you feel like you should have seen uh no oh. i mean I, I see what i can <laughs> i don't care about seeing blockbusters almost ever unless there's some personnel that i care about in fact if anything i i resent the implication that i should be seeing blockbusters which does come up sometimes um because i'm also involved in film criticism somewhat mm. um but yeah no i just i just try not to worry about these things yeah, well, I, I think that's probably a way healthier approach, <laughs> way more stable approach. But yeah, I know what you're talking about, Carl. And uh, it happens to me less with TV just because, uh, I mean, I'm always on the lookout for other new shows that are interesting. And because we have the DVD shelf, that kind of takes some of the pressure off for us for discovering or catching up with the you know the great shows that you need to have seen. Um, because we, I can just like throw that off. Well, some as soon as somebody makes me watch it, then you know, then I'll watch it. But uh, I definitely have cert- I have felt that for for um, for film, like there's because there's a hundred years of great cinema a lot of which i haven't seen um a lot of quite a reasonable number that i have but a lot of which i haven't and so I, that's what i would just focus on uh, that's my advice i guess carl is focus on how much great tv you have seen and d- don't feel bad like you don't feel like you have to watch everything because it will be impossible you yeah. it's a losing battle it cannot be won i also feel like uh there is so much you can get out of rewatching something that you loved, especially if you're watching it with someone who hasn't seen it before. Because um, I've I've found even with series that I thought I knew really well, I'll notice things on rewatch if if it's got any sort of uh, you know depth to it, which most series I really love do. So that's another thing you can do. Well, and certainly if it's been a few years, you know, you, you'll be amazed which parts of the show will just come or you have a an incredibly vivid memory of but like you say simon uh a lot of your favorites and also the ones that you w- would consider i mean carl's got excellent taste i think but carl the series that you think are the all-time great shows especially if you haven't seen them in a few years like when's the last time you did a twilight zone rewatch or x files or you know we just we're talking about oz or any of these other shows if you're looking for you know shows that are great tv Go back to something that you know that you like, um, but that you haven't watched in five years, haven't watched in 10 years, and rediscover it and you know find that joy and watch it with a new pet- pair of eyes, new set of eyes. 
seeing you know watch twin peaks again and when you know see all of the stuff that has happened since twin peaks that was because of twin peaks i mean mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of different approaches but maybe hopefully this is somewhat helpful yeah I, it's it's always a good idea to revisit the 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 art you love and that goes for film and tv and because uh, because you know also you're different than the last time that you watched it that's the, that that's i think the main thing yeah and there's nothing wrong with coming home and watching some stupid reality show too because we all great tv comes in every genre and the the stuff that gets underlined it's like how uh, at the at the oscars comedies never seem to get nominated for, as best of the years because they don't they don't have a tendency of uh, presenting themselves as all caps great, which doesn't mean that they aren't. Um, so, so you know, there's a lot of really tremendous TV out there that is not the stuff that ends up on best year, best of the year list or uh, best of all time lists. So don't uh, undervalue those shows as well, I would say. Yeah, some, some, a lot of them we don't even ever talk about and we'll yeah. never talk about because this is too much of it there's <laughs> too much absolutely um well uh this has been a lengthy listener feedback section but hopefully an entertaining one now we're going to take a break and uh come back with our week in comedy and reality Week in reality and comedy, Top Chef is back, but we're not going to talk about that because we're going to spend our reality time on the Golden Globes, and then we're going to talk comedy with you. Uh, there are a lot of comedies we like this week, but the ones we're going to focus on are the premieres. So we have the premiere of Archer, The Holdout, the P Portlandia premiere, the story of Tony and Candace, the Babylon pilot. We're sticking this in uh, comedy. We'll discuss that more later. The girls premiere Iowa, the togetherness pilot family day and the premiere of looking season two, looking for the promised land. Let's start with the golden globes, which mostly is going to mean the opening monologue. But before we get to that, can we just, just enjoy for a moment, the fact that the only broadcast network show or actor or director was Gina Rodriguez. That was amazing. I mean, I, I, I was, I, I was watching the good wife, and then on commercial breaks, I was ch just looking at Twitter because I didn't watch the Golden Globes at all, uh, except for the so – I caught some highlights afterwards, such as the opening monologue. And then I saw that within the, the space of a few minutes, uh, Gina Rodriguez had won Best Actress and Transparent had won, I guess, Best Comedy Series? Yes. And damn – Damn, credit where it's due, man. And some fabulous speeches from both Gina Rodriguez and Jill Soloway, and they kept it brief, but I really loved uh, Gina Rodriguez's comment about um, it being a show that depicts uh, an underrepresented minority who wants to see themselves portrayed as heroes on TV. I think that was just lovely. There was there were many very lovely speeches uh, at the Globes, and you know, there, I was feeling so great about the t the TV wins until we got to the drama nominees, and, and I'm watching this going, 
only one of these shows cracked my top 18 of last year. <laughs> uh, so, so yay, the affair, at least Downton Abbey didn't win, I guess. But like both the actor in a drama and the, uh, the drama series, I don't even remember what happened with actress in a drama, but the, the comedy awards I was much more excited about than the drama awards. Also the miniseries awards, great speech, Maggie Gyllenhaal, fabulous, loved it. Um, but yeah, the drama awards was just like, why am I not watching the good wife? Instead of watching the good wife, not win the awards, it should be winning and not even be nominated for the awards it should be nominated for. I should be watching The Good Wife, like Simon well, is. Well, maybe not in this instance, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, <laughs> but should we talk about uh, that monologue? That was amazing. And uh, I mean, a few people, uh, I didn't see them, but I, I heard that they exist. A, a few people took offense at their decision, the, the way in which they mocked Bill Cosby, uh, not because they did it, but because of how they did it. And to that I say, hooey, they made, they made, you know, they made those references on network television when probably no one else would. So come on. It was awesome because, especially because uh, Tina Fey had said something in like lead ups to this, like interviews or something, people asking what we should expect. There was some mention of Cosby joke. Uh, uh, there being some Cosby humor. And so you think the Sleeping Beauty line is going to be the Cosby joke, but then they just keep going. They're like, oh, no, 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 we're not done yet. We're burning our bridges and making sure we don't get called back. Which the fact that that, <laughs> that this is certainly, at least as far as I'm concerned, and I think a lot of people are concerned, not enough to burn their bridges and make us not want them to host again uh, is a delightful thing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it would be would have been nice to see more of them throughout the evening, of course, but the Globes always run long, so, you know. Maybe don't have some of the terrible, terrible bits like the hater and wig thing that just didn't end um, and some of the other really painful ones uh, and, and have them instead. But in general, I, you know, that's a really strong opening monologue. I enjoyed their would you rather. Um, I, I enjoyed uh, s several elements to their to their opening. Uh, the, I think um, the, the two hours of makeup for Steve Carell versus three hours to, for the role of woman was delightful as well there's some really good stuff yeah they were great uh if they never do it again as i assume they won't uh whoever comes next uh, <laughs> i'm sorry i probably won't be watching sorry unless it's i mean you could just give it to gina rodriguez <laughs> well didn't we say we want julia louis dreyfus up there oh that would be good i feel uh, like we need a gap though i feel like you know you don't want to make her follow them because we like her too much yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's just whoever whoever's next year. I'm just I'm sorry because it's not going to be that. It's not. Uh, let's move on to the comedies. Uh, we're going to start with Archer and the premiere of The Holdout. What did you what did you think of this episode? Uh, I think the I mean, I reviewed the whole season up on up on the website and my thoughts on this episode are pretty much the same as they are for the other five that I watched. Uh, so I'm going to try not to drone on about this too much every week. But uh, Archer has gotten very good at sort of each week they tend to take an old uh, TV show or, 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 you know, it's sort of very old school genre trope and lampoon it and pay homage to it at the same time in the space of 22 minutes in a way that nominally moves the characters forward. And so, you know, this week we get the uh, the trope of the you know, the, the the man left behind after the war who never heard that it ended. Uh, and, you know, which is not, it's clearly not a trope that Archer invented. Uh, and we get, you know, sort of a, 
uh, a sly modern take on that, while we also get a little bit of time of Archer thinking about his role as a father, etc. Uh, but obviously not too much. And that's very much what this season is. It's, you know, every week we get uh, the Archer version of a story we kind of know and uh, rinse and repeat. And this is, I think, probably one of the better ones out of the ones that I saw. I'm not sure I have if I have much more to add than that. It was fun. I liked uh <laughs> I, I did enjoy uh, the 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 reveal of the uh, the ISIS headquarters, which is going to be. I think uh, did they even mention ISIS then? That's, that's going to be the last mention of that name for the company uh, for the spy agency in the rest of the show, probably. <laughs> Certainly, oh, definitely this season. Um, and they, I got to say, they do a pretty good job with that because that could easily become. You know, could could become awkward, but I think they handle it well. But no, the just the what's the name of the copier that makes toast? Oh uh, my god, it's pretty fabulous. And just you know the way that they just break Mallory a little bit by showing her these gorgeous, and then it's a hot. They spent all the money on a hologram. I mean, it's delightful. Yeah, that was great. Uh, yeah, like there's there's all sorts of great little gags like that. The whole thing with the ISIS name, I like that they don't make it. Uh, they, there, there are no references to why they're changing the name. Uh, it's just like in the dustbin out. They did, they don't make any dumb terrorism jokes. It's just like, uh, you know, when you, to hear Adam Reed talk about it, he, you know, they knew for years that it might be a problem. And, uh, then of course this year it just became completely untenable and they just drop it and that's it. It's, it's a, it's a very unobtrusive way to do it. Uh, and I think it was the smart way to do it. Yeah. Um, there's the last thing I have to say about Archer is really this is I and, and I appreciated the jokes along this line, but that's what they're naming the baby. I mean, they can call her AJ all they want, but that's that's, that's a terrible baby name. I, I like all all of their shout outs to it, but it doesn't make it better to disagree. Abigene. Abigene. I'm sorry. Uh, I've heard worse. Her name is Abby Jean. Now, Abigene. Abigene. Oh, sorry. One word. That makes it better. I think so. It's I, not at a least name. I, I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm not pleased with the spelling, but I like the way it rolls off the tongue. It has at least that. Yeah, no. I, and I know, I'm sure we'll hear from someone who that's that's fine. I'll go for it. But just as Amantha is, it took me like two <laughs> okay. seasons to not it's be bothered not, by. It's Abigene. not Amantha level. I'm yeah, still no. bothered by Amantha. Honestly, what's going to happen is we're going to hear from someone named Abigene, and they're going to be like, fuck you. <laughs> please, uh, please please, write in and then leave us an iTunes rating or review about how we're terrible people because we don't like your name. I'm sure oh, you're... I so badly want to hear from an Amantha. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm sure they're lovely. On TV, I don't like their name. Anyways, that's, that's the level of thing I'm complaining about for Archer. Clearly, it's an enjoyable premiere. Let's talk about the Portlandia premiere, the story of Tony and Candace. And unfortunately, I haven't seen enough of Portlandia to know if this is a break in format for them or if this is something they've done before. But in the episodes that I've seen of the show, they've never had one sketch be the entire episode. And I like this version of the show way better. Do you? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm under the impression that over the last few seasons, the, the, the form of the show has gotten a lot more elastic. I could be wrong. But uh, Portlandia is frustrating for me because it does so many things that I want other series to do in terms of world building and specificity and, you know, paying attention to uh, the way it's filmed and, you know, so many other things that, that, that shows like Broad City are getting right. 
but for some reason I just never find it funny when Portlandia does it. And it's really too bad because I love Carrie Branstein and Fred Armisen and it just never works for me. And it really should. Like I, I, there's no, there's no parts of the, of the cultural references of the humor that I don't get. I just don't find it funny basically ever. Well, see, but I'm not, I wasn't laughing, but I was enjoying the time I spent with the show, which with sketch comedy is not always the case. You know, the hit to miss ratio of a sketch comedy show, it, it just comes down to, is it enough hits that you like the show or is it, are there not enough hits to counteract the misses? Cause there's almost always at least one that's a miss. Cause it's really hard to do. Um, so for me, this sketch, I may not have been this, you know, lengthy, just focus on the, the bookshop women. Um, it may not have had me laughing out loud, but I never got tired of the, very predictable 90s jokes. I still was having fun with them instead of watching them have fun and that not translate. Right. It's def- I mean, it definitely feels very different from the show that we saw back at, what, season one? Yeah. <laughs> How long have we been doing this fucking podcast? <laughs> A while. <laughs> but Yeah, because I, I don't think either of us have watched it since then. Uh, it, it's from what I've read of the show, because I do often read up on shows that I don't watch, uh, even while they're happening. And from what I've read, like the show has evolved a lot and it's it's gotten to the point where it can do episodes like this and it's no big deal. And that's great. And I'm glad the show has a has a devoted fan base and it's clearly very uh, it has a very singular vision. I just wish that it spoke to me at all. And it doesn't. And that's very frustrating. Yeah. So it, it's not it, it's not you. It's me, Portlandia, <laughs> I think. Fair enough. How about Babylon? Is it them or you or did you like it? Uh, Babylon, for anyone who is is unfamiliar, this is uh, airing on the Sundance Network and uh, Sundance Channel, rather, and it's a British export about cops and the media. The pilot was directed by Danny Boyle, but apparently that episode isn't airing. It's a whole thing. Anyway, we'll get there. Uh, And it's from the same people who brought us Peep Show. But if you've seen Peep Show, this isn't really anything like Peep Show, uh, in case that's not confusing enough. And uh, oh, by I like the way, it. another show, any friends of the show listening, I still haven't seen Peep Show and that's wrong. So that's another DVD shelf we would like to do. Oh, except Peep Show is not over. It's not over. Never mind. No. Rescinded. I, 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 as, as far as I know that, I mean, the last season didn't end on any sort of conclusive note. And I, I feel like they're just going to do it again when they feel like it. But anyway, um, Peep Show is is probably one of my 10 favorite comedies of the last decade. Um, that might, uh, I don't know. Anyway, we'll get there. Um, but Babylon, uh, I really like Babylon. I've seen, uh, a couple episodes now and I think that it is doing some very, very difficult things and it does most of them quite well. Uh, it has to balance, uh, a certain level of respect for its characters, uh, most of whom are police officers or police brass while not uh, I guess unduly venerating them just because uh, they're performing a dangerous job, if that makes sense. Uh, and uh, some it doesn't always get that balance right, but I think uh, it's got a lot of really sharp performances and a lot of whip smart dialogue. And the fact that we're sticking it in comedy, it had to go somewhere. And I know that people, some people think it's a comedy, some people think it's a drama. I don't know. It certainly has dramatic elements, but I think there's just enough sort of vulgar banter to put it in comedy for me. Yeah, it, it's. It like we you know before we started recording we were discussing where do we put this and it does feel very much like you like you said off mic I mean fifty fifty it 
could go either way with certain elements and the balance of that works really well. But like you said, uh, the tone does feel, if you're looking at percentage wise, I guess at least at the beginning of the season, this may shift over the course of the season, but for this, for this first episode, it does feel more comedic. So that's what we're going with. Um, yeah, and the, the ability to balance that works really well. This first episode, I just, I, mean, I got to talk briefly about the fact that they aren't airing the first episode of the series. <laughs> because, okay, they're retitling these episodes. So this pilot is called, or the, the premiere is called Cravenwood now, instead of episode one, as it's known in the UK. You're okay re-order, re retitling these episodes, but you're not okay just saying that Season one, episode one is the actual pilot directed by Danny Boyle. It apparently there is a reason that makes sense, but it is really annoying when the first episode, what what you're pitching as the first episode of your series, has a previously on that's clearly an entire episode, if not a movie. Um, so yeah, that's. Did, we didn't need to have that entire previously on. We didn't need to know about the sniper. We didn't need to know about all that other stuff. We could have just been told the stuff that was actually pertinent, and then we wouldn't have felt like we were missing out on a really fun episode. Yeah, uh, that that's entirely fair. I mean, it, I you you could you could. I'm trying to think now, but I I I I I watched the same previously on as you, and it's almost two minutes long. You're like, damn. Uh, I feel like I almost can't watch this now, which isn't true. Uh, you can jump. You can jump right into this episode. Yeah, there's a lot going on, but you know, there's just a lot going on in the show in general. Yeah, I think the cast works really well together. I think the the, like you said last week in our in our mid season preview, it is very timely. And uh, when you compare an episode like this to the Good Wife episode, we're going to talk about later. It's like, there's no comparison. This is a way way better way to look at. Um, you know, police brutality situations or, you know, obviously this has a very different lens um, and is very much told from the perspective of the police officers, but it's just handled with so much more care. Um, And again, this was, this predates those occurrences, but still, this is a much better look at these kinds of situations. Yeah. And I I guess what I'm most curious about going forward is going to be the depiction of the uh, the police commissioner played by James Nesbitt, who is, uh, as I mentioned before, just so great on the show. And I love his interplay with Britt Marling uh, and the other guy uh, who I don't know who the actor is, but their sniping is fantastic. And um, I'm curious to see how the characterization of that character evolves over the course of the season, because I feel like if if he is too venerable then the show kind of goes off kilter. Uh, but I think that there are some signs in, uh, especially the next episode, that, they're, that they've got a really nice balance with him. Yeah, the performance is certainly very engaging, and the writing is very good. Uh, as The direction in this episode also ha- it has enough energy and enough humor to, to make, you know, and with the direction and the editing together work really well to, to, again, help with that tone. This is basically just a show filled with British actors I like and have seen in many things, and Britt Marling. Um, and so it's really fun <laughs> for me when, when they pop up in these different roles, and I'm like, ah, it's the guy from The Fades. It's the best friend Love from the fades dude. and it's the uh it, it's the guy the new guy on uh, marvel's agents of shield and etc etc this is an entire cast of that um and so it's really fun to see them in interesting and um 
it's only the pilot, but what seemed like well constructed and very fleshed out, um, at least by the actors' roles. Um, so I, I look forward to watching the rest of Babylon. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, God, what's his name from uh, so many other things? Uh, Joseph Patterson. Yeah. Uh, who people will know from The Leftovers and and Peep Show and other things yeah. uh, in, a, in a really fun little role. And uh, and also, since you mentioned the direction, the whole prison riot aspect is really, really uh, well well executed. And it, it, it has a great sort of mounting tension aspect to what's otherwise a pretty light uh, premiere. Yeah. And it's the, the juxtaposition of Britt Marling and the 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 her it, her pleased reaction to the the news coverage with the footage of what the actual police officers are, are going through is very well done. Uh, punctuating the point without being overly didactic about it. Certainly, at least to me, um, shall we move on to the HBO premiere night? Yeah, let's, uh, let's do that. Let's kick things off with, uh, Iowa, which is the season four, season five, no, four, which is the season four premiere uh, for girls. And I like this one more than everybody else seems to have. I wrote it up. I, I'm going to be reviewing girls over at Sound on Sight. And uh, for me, this was very much um, a coda to season three, more than really the premiere to season four. But given how much theoretically will change when Hannah is off in Iowa, I actually think it's kind of a nice way to start the season. Yeah, I, I've I've heard some tidbits about where things are going this season, and they all sound really interesting to me. Um, and I won't say more than that because nobody wants to be spoiled on stuff. Uh, the, the conversation around Sunday night's television was extremely strange. Yeah, uh, and we'll get we'll we'll get there. Uh, apparently, everyone's takeaway from this episode of Girls was, "Hey, uh, there's there's some analingus," and otherwise the episode was really boring, uh, which I don't understand. I mean, it's it felt it was definitely a low key premiere for the most part, uh, but it, like you said, it was c- completely of a piece with last season. Which, again, some people seem to think last season wasn't as good as previous. Which, ah, uh, people and their opinions, I'll never understand. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Like you said, it was d- absolutely a- of a piece and felt like a- an epilogue or a coda to last season. Uh, which I I guess kind of explains why people thought it was it was boring because they were expecting more of a splashy premiere. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with uh, just taking stock of what's going on in this first episode, uh, taking it slow, just checking in with everyone, and before we, you know, drown them in shit once more. Well, and again, a lot happened in the in the season finale. In previous years, the season finale has felt like there was closure. Um, so in the season two finale, we get the the you know Charlie and Mar and Marnie seemingly walking off into the sunset together we get Adam sprinting through the streets to get to Hannah and there's the question of as to whether that is a good thing or a destructive thing uh, but the way that the 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 season 2 finale ends it feels like that is closure the way that the season 3 finale uh, puts all the different characters. I mean, we get just almost kills somebody. Uh, we get uh, like very little resolution with Shoshana. We get Marnie starting to make a very destructive decision. And we get uh, a what could be a cliffhanger or could be um, a completely res- a resolution for Hannah here. What, you know, with her smile with the envelope and her choice with Adam, um, that could have resolution, but what I really like about this, the way this pr- premiere ends is that it, 
it ends with her not smiling, really. And so it's a nice juxtaposition of those two moments, the the apparently fleeting joy she felt at receiving her letter to go to Iowa, and then now the uncertainty as she heads to Iowa. So, like, even though that theoretically is a very conclusion-y way to end her arc for season three... Counterpoint, counterpointing those two here with the premiere fits really well. So I'm glad that they didn't just jump to a bunch of new storylines because I wanted to see the fallout of what happened with Jessa. I wanted to see the fallout what happened of what happened with Shoshana and with Marnie and Desi and Clementine. I'm glad Natalie Morales is back. I'm hoping they'll actually, you know, give her a story this year. Um, I don't know. What about <laughs> That's you? That's not going to happen. Um, I mean, the only thing I'm really looking forward to with, with Natalie Morales is her eventual just like wallpaper tearing bitching out of Marnie because that's going to be a great, great moment. Uh, but I, I mean, I think most people were expecting that this premiere would open with Hannah in Iowa with a new, with a new set of wacky circumstances. So maybe that's the source of the, of the disappointment. But uh, I, I mean, I, I would co-sign everything you said. I thought it was a perfectly solid premiere with a lot of great little moments and uh, not just the things that will make, uh, that that made for, you know, dumb think pieces the next day. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say um, is that I really, well, two last things. First of all, loved <laughs> Elijah's uh, scenes and the, the bitchy return of Pal. Uh, delightful. And then also, I love that Marnie can be terrible in this episode and then show up, have gotten up at like 5 a.m. because she looks too good to have just rolled out of bed and gone right there to get to see Hannah at six. Got, got out of bed at like 5 a.m. to bring coffee to her friend who's leaving town. It was absolutely sweet. Their hug was beautiful, and I loved the direction of that moment. I mean, there's a lot to really like here, but it's just, you know, on the subtler side of things, which is not always maybe something that people are looking for with girls. Yeah, and can I just say that in retrospect, the uh the solid reintegration of elijah was probably the smartest thing they've done over the last like half a season yeah they're very they're very happy i have to assume that the the new normal did not take off was that his show what was his show recently uh i i i i, I couldn't say it was it probably was that very good as i recall it was it did not take full advantage of its talented cast is is a common network uh a failed network sitcom issue um anyways let's move on to the second show uh, of the night for hbo and that's togetherness the the pilot is family day and this is another one Mon sunday night was weird for tv because everybody else loves this way more than either of us did yeah i mean it's a, when we say it was a weird night for, for tv we just mean it was a weird night for us for us to be um, on twitter yeah yeah no uh we don't I mean, you know, we're just we're just not always going to agree with the consensus. I mean, this comes to us courtesy of the Duplass brothers. If you've seen a Duplass brothers film, uh, you have got you've got a pretty good idea of what to expect from this series because it's very much a series long extension of uh, of one of their films. I mean, I think the difference is that it's a little bit more broadly sitcommy than one of their films would be. So you know, you you have. Uh, there's just a, there's a level of physical comedy that you weren't that you aren't necessarily getting uh, from their films, particularly uh, courtesy of the Steve Zissis character. Uh, I mean, here's the thing with Together is it's it's perfectly fine. It's completely competent. It's good, uh, but, but it's you could even call it good. Uh, and it has I would say there are individual scenes that qualify as very good, 
but the overall impact of the show is kind of nil to me. Like it's, I, I once after I'm like, I'm going to really struggle with talking about it because it, it doesn't resonate with me at all. Like it, it, maybe it's a generational thing because I just don't necessarily, uh, you know, specifically relate to any of the characters, but I think it's also just because it's all extremely familiar. And it was weird to re- to read a bunch of reviews talking about how uh, refreshing the show was because uh, there was nothing novel to me about any of these characters or situations, which is too bad because I love, uh, you know, elements of the cast, especially. Yeah, I think the cast is really good. And I liked getting to meet basically Steve Zissis. And I'm sure I've seen him out in other things, but I think he's very good here um, in the in the show in general. But, I, you know, in, in any of these episodes, he's get, he gets a few more showcase, more more showcasey kind of episodes later in the season. Um, but I think he's very good here as well. But yeah, these this does not feel new or refreshing to me in any way. I feel like I've seen each of these characters many, many times before on TV and in film. I do not feel like there's anything here uh that i have not seen on other shows surrounded by more more interesting or creative points of view um that's not to say that i don't like it or that i think it's bad or that i you know i'm anti the duplass brothers i think that you know i i like i said last week on the the season preview uh, i think that uh they're they're really talented and i've enjoyed what i've seen of their work uh, particularly as actors i've seen more of their work as actors than as directors but i've liked what i have seen um but again the the couple who really likes each other uh, is still in love with each other but is struggling to connect romantically or physically um, that's something we've seen before. We saw that last year, several times on several different shows being told in you know, stories, being told in a very similar manner. That's not dissimilar from what we saw on several episodes of married. Uh, no, it really isn't. And I like, you know, I, I don't want to just like List, keep mentioning yeah. examples, but like, I don't know. It was just, there was some real cognitive dissonance going on with, uh, with some things I was, I was reading. I, I just feel like out of the, out of HBO's three shows that night, it's so not even close to being the most interesting. Well, and I think the part of the issue for me is also because to transition to our last comedy of the week, nobody was talking about Looking, and I thought Looking had a fabulous premiere. It was the best of the three for me. I thought it was absolutely delightful, and everybody's losing their mind over togetherness when I feel like nobody's even watching Looking, and I don't know what's up with that. Uh, yeah, I don't think that Looking's numbers are, are, are in for a significant uptick this season uh, based on the very low amount of, of talk we're getting. I mean, I don't I don't want to make any broad generalizations, but uh, I read, uh, you know, based on what I read from people who do watch it or who have given it a try, it doesn't feel as though Looking uh, is really connecting with uh, with a broad swath of gay viewers. Um I'm not really sure why that is. Um, maybe maybe they feel like uh, it's. Uh, no, I'm not even gonna get gonna get into trying to guess that one. But uh, I, I just feel like whatever whatever demo HBO th- thought looking might cater to, it's not really happening. Uh, which is really too bad because, like you said, this is probably the best uh, of those three episodes. Uh, it's it's just it's beautifully shot throughout. It's got some great moments. I love I love the idea that uh, Lynn doesn't actually make an, a physical appearance in this episode, but his presence is all over it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially in in the form of that of that, that awful painting. awful painting. Oh, it's wonderful <laughs> with the eagle. Uh, yeah, and I just love that there were so many opportunities for cheap drama that just don't happen. 
uh like when we find out that uh uh that you know one one character seems to be stepping out but no it's totally cool with lynn oh okay uh like no drama great um just so many great little choices like that uh fantastic music selection and uh just uh, as we talked about in our in our season preview just a, a really singular sense of uh of vibe for lack of a better word uh that other shows just like you know watching togetherness like you might you might you might you might be uh you might be amused by togetherness like like I was while watching it but it doesn't really leave any lasting uh psychological imprint which i think looking uh, absolutely does uh hours after you watch it or days yeah and granted i i've seen fewer shows telling uh stories about characters like those in looking however if you're gonna praise a show on hbo sunday night right now for being refreshing for telling stories that aren't told or caring about characters who don't get fully developed on other shows it's looking it's so obviously looking <laughs> it's not even close i mean compare looking the main character is is a nerd basically who who is a who's a programmer is there any character any a tiny bit like this on silicon valley on the big bang theory on any of the other theoretical nerd shows out there no no although to be fair looking very rarely touches on his status as a programmer it does uh, spend more time with him at work than uh than it does with him talking about coding certainly but still these are these are not people that are whose stories are being told elsewhere and something like togetherness there's no again for me i shouldn't it's not fair to denigrate togetherness for looking that's just ridiculous yeah, for I, I will say that my big hope for this season is that it gets me to care about Augustine because that was uh, a, a big thorn in the show's side for me last year. Mm -hmm. And I think based on this episode, just even if only based on having him just admit, yeah, I'm just I was shitty at all of those things. Mm -hmm. And now I'm not really good at anything, but at least I could admit it. Like, <laughs> oh, OK, I, that's nice. I, I, I like that. You know, it's magic. The show has made me care about Patrick. I would not have thought that was possible in season one. Yeah. Well, I, I think it really laid the groundwork for that in the last couple of episodes. Certainly. I, yeah, that's, let's be fair. It did, it did absolutely, you're right, go a long way towards that. But uh, th th I really enjoyed the time with each of these characters. Doris uh, pops up here and gets some of the best lines as well. Um, but yeah, fabulous premiere for looking. Um, and I, I really hope that they can keep this up all season. Cause I would love to have it be a best of the year contender. Um, certainly for top 20, it wasn't for me last year. I'm really hoping it can be this year. Yeah. I would co-sign on that. Well, do we have uh, any final thoughts on looking at these other series or if not, what wins your week in reality and comedy? Oh, uh, final thoughts that the internet is dumb. <laughs> um, <sighs> There's a lot of good stuff this week. Uh, really like the Babylon premiere. Really like the Looking premiere. Uh, Looking's another one whose placement in comedy is completely arbitrary. Let's be honest. Yeah. Um, like these, this, this, the divisions are starting to get just like really. It, it's a flip of a coin. Um, I will. I'll give it to Looking, if only because the whole Sunday thing was just so just so dumb. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I will give it to looking and an honorable mention to uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler's uh, Globes monologue because that was delightful. 
that was fantastic. And now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in genre and drama. genre and drama we're going to talk uh, a little bit about the agent carter pilot now is not the end and i also watched the second episode bridge and tunnel uh then we'll talk about banshee which had its season premiere of the fire trials i'm going to talk briefly about elementary the eternity injection um then parenthood how do we get here and the good wife the debate oh the good wife um but let's start with agent carter you watched the pilot i didn't know if you would seeing as as augustine mentioned superheroes aren't really your thing this is way more spy than superhero however uh how did it work for you uh i mean it was okay i'm not really sure why everyone is insane over Haley atwell i think she's fine she's a she's a perfectly solid series lead uh who as far as i can tell has been in very few things other than the marvel things that she's done uh, but everyone seems to just suddenly be in love with her for some reason. She's she's fine here. The show is fine. Uh, it's it's uh, how can I put this? It's not an ambitious show, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's doing some very familiar things. This sort of like uh, retro, sort of like Dick Tracy meets the Rocketeer sort of aesthetic uh, that is not, uh, you know, the the. The visual conventions are very much established. It's not breaking any new ground there. Again, that's fine. Um, I think that it's a pretty conservative show in the sense that a lot of what... um, How can I put this? Virtually everything that's going to happen on the show is happening within a fairly narrow confine because they know the period. They know... We know what happens with... Agent Carter. Yeah, we know her. We we're not worried she's going to get killed off. Basically, yes, right. Uh, we know she gets to be old at some point. We right, Mm -hmm. like that happens. Okay. Uh, and we know that there are things about the mythology here that connects to uh some of the Iron Man films. So like, the they're it's kind of difficult for them to screw it up. It does that make any sense? Like, not to not give the show credit, but I just feel like it's a very safe property for them well it's difficult theoretically it's difficult not to screw up except that we've seen marvel screw up stuff that should be that's true easy not to i mean let's as much as i do enjoy the marvel properties in general i mean it took way too long for shield to find its find its feet and it took i mean let's let's just not the, the least said about thor to the better i mean damn Damn, guys. Uh, so there, I think there are certainly ways that they could have screwed this up. And um, it's sad. It is depressing how happy 
my sister and I are to have any superhero kind of show centered on a woman. Mm -hmm. It is just, it is depressing that that is a big deal to us and in general. It shouldn't be a big deal to us because we shouldn't care. We should just say that, screw that stupid sexist, uh, you know, the stupid sexist approach to what superheroes can be, what can make money and can't make money at the box office and on TV, etc. And yet, I still care. Can I uh, take a slightly contrarian tack here? Go for it. And just and just say, yeah, yes, it's fantastic that we get a show with a female superhero, although she doesn't have any superpowers um, other than being British. The uh, that's cool. I kind of wish, though, that it didn't uh, sideline a bunch of really great actors to being just stock sexist jerks. Uh, like, is that really the best use of Shea Wiggum's time, for instance? Well, yeah, I could. I see what you're saying. However, it seems pretty clear that that's going to be an arc over the course of the season. Um, and you know what? I don't. I don't mind, frankly, the that this being the the arc for the eight episode show that we're getting it's not like we're gonna get a full 22 episode season 13 <laughs> episode season here where we can really explore all of the characters there's only eight hours with commercials of story and so the fact that they are centering squarely on on agent carter is fine with me and then you have characters that are less developed that are less interesting certainly in this pilot um, it would be nice if they were more nuanced but this like you say this is not a subtle show this is a show telling stories in broad strokes in very stylized uh bright colors and and all of that so the fact that this is a show that is unabashedly feminist and just kind of about about a woman who is really tired of having to fit into this peg that this role that she is defined as and have, <laughs> peg and being overlooked and not appreciated because of her gender i mean the the fact that agent carter is a show about a woman who's not taken seriously uh as uh, as a basically as a spy slash superhero because she's a woman uh because of her gender is just delightful to me considering how long it's taken um, Marvel to take any of its female characters seriously. The fact that there still is not a uh, a Black Widow movie that they're gonna even try to make, you know, this is this is a show set in this you know post World War II time period that is making fun of at least to me, it's making fun of Marvel for its uh, lack of faith in its audience and its in its audience's willingness to support female characters uh that i mean that if if you want to read it that way that's great there's no way in hell anyone at marvel thinks about how th thinks that way about how they're making the show oh, no, no no marvel doesn't think that think that way but i wouldn't put it past some of the showrunners to be thinking that way uh, uh who knows i will say that the whole dialogue surrounding female superheroes and depiction of female superheroes especially on screen is so ridiculous like the whole thing with I don't want to go on too long a tangent here, but the whole thing with "Hey, we're making a Wonder Woman movie, and we've got a we've got a lady to direct it." It's like, <laughs> okay, so that you're only ever going to hire people like Michelle McLaren if they're doing if they're handling a lady superhero, like, yep. uh, like this is this is this is what you're giving yourself a pat on the back for. Come the hell on, yeah. Anyway, the whole and like you said, the fact that this is refreshing 
I think that says more about the wider sort of circumstance than it does about Agent Carter, the show. Well, and the, here, there's the other main thing for me with Agent Carter. And uh, I, I saw some tweets uh, when this was airing or right after that I thought were interesting talking about how this is the most um, universally praised show in quite a while. Like everybody seems to like it. But here's the thing. Everybody seems to like it. Very few people are over the moon. No, and, I, we and, have low expectations for this series. We just want to have fun. And w- uh, for me, I I have very much liked Hilly Atwell in this role from the first Captain America movie on. I don't know that she's been given tremendous uh, amounts of things to do, but I feel like there is more there. I, tr- I, I think she can do more, and I'm hoping that we get to see more from her with this eight-episode miniseries. But again, this is eight episodes. I'm looking for awesome outfits jazzy fun music which we get some of it here i know maybe a bit too much for you simon uh witty banter and eight episodes of escapist feminist fun and so far that's what i got yeah and i mean yeah the 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 bar is not stratospherically high here if they can if they can deliver those things that people are expecting i think people are going to clap just because it's not early agents of shield yeah yeah any final thoughts on Agent Carter? Uh, no, not really. It's it's a perfectly fine version of a show I don't particularly care about. And that you, I'm guessing you're not going to keep watching. Uh, if, if it's a really slow night, I might. Okay, fair enough. Well, how about Banshee, which had its season three premiere, The Fire Trials? Um, I know that you said you, I, I, I want to say that you have not seen season two. No, I completely skipped season two. How did season three work for you? I actually think this is a really fun premiere, acknowledging the usual sort of qualms and quibbles and little problems that I have <laughs> with uh, with Banshee. I think it's it is a very good episode of Banshee. I think that um, it's pretty clear that they that they more or less cleared the deck in season two. There's there's you know an opening bit of business uh, that sort of ties all that up, and then it's more or less a clean slate. And I think that was probably smart. The, the whole notion of, uh, you know, this, this resident sort of uh, First Nations gang basically taking on the U.S. military is endearingly pulpy and ridiculous. Uh, and the whole showdown with the bow and arrow is kind of amazing. And uh, the, the fact that, that, that they stack on top of this a theoretical uh, robbing of an army base is also pretty cool. That being said, I didn't care about anything involving Kai Proctor, and I'm not sure why I should. Yeah, the the I, I have a hard time with with Proctor, who started out as such an interesting figure. The part of me is very glad that they just skipped to incest with that because that happened off screen. They just they were teasing some of that stuff in in season two. Um, and then I, so I kind of was just like, oh, good. We're just not going to pretend that we're, this is something people like, I, I'm glad we just kind of fast forwarded there. But that being said, I don't care about that character. And with, um, with the, the niece fully committed, it seems to this world, um, I don't have reasons to be hugely invested in her either. I'm not seeing too much um, nuance. And I don't know that if, if he's functioning as the villain of the piece, I don't know how much nuance I need. He, he can just kind of be 
uh, campy, over the top, and ridiculous, and that's the kind of show Banshee is, and I can have fun with that, certainly. I, I don't think that's what they're going for with but him, though. Exactly. C- certainly not with the scene with his mother and things like that. Yeah, and, and individual scenes work for me. Um, I do like the scene with his mother. I do like when they return to the Amish community, but you know, in season two, had uh, introduced the reservation and that part of the world. Um, and, and of the three, you know, the first season had the, the Amish community. The second season had the reservation. The third season adds in the military base. By far the most interesting to me was the the Amish community. But when there's no longer the storyline of the niece trying to choose between these two very different lives of the Amish community and, you know, her mob boss uncle and the life that that will would lead to you know what what that could be um then i there's no longer much tension for me i don't think chiropractor is going to change ever uh, i think that that it, that would be very odd if he did if they tried to make me think he would um so i don't really know where the narrative energy in that is supposed to go um so yeah so i i see it's it's a fun character. It's a fun performance. It's a very um, engaging performance in the moment, but it doesn't really stick with me. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. Uh, but I think basically everything else in this premiere works. Uh, the whole entrance or re-entrance of Job is also pretty epic. Yeah, Job is delightful. Always, always love Job. And uh, yeah, having him return in this way is, is pretty great. Um, yeah, it's a fun engaging it's it's still again for me it's still not quite strike back strike back levels but i do think it's a a delightful very banshee start to the season and also uh i i mean i guess it was probably uh already there in in season one but i just wanted to mention love all the practical explosions yeah always love practical explosions they can't be that much more expensive than the fake ones guys Yep. Well, I mean, again, we've talked about it with both shows. Banshee does it, uh, Strike Back does it, and there's no way that's a show with a with a particularly high budget compared to so many others. So uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, I wanted to mention Elementary quickly, the Eternity Injection, because it was a particularly nice episode for Johnny Lee Miller. There was some really nice scenes with him and Lucy Liu. The I continued to enjoy their dynamic when they let the two characters just kind of sit and and listen to each other and uh again this is a procedural and while they've done well with their on the whole with with their cases of the week and certainly with introducing kitty and what they've managed to do with that part, corner of the show this season um i i've missed having more moments like this but having the character um lament the the banality of his sober life and the fact that he knows what, you know, that that struggling to become sober and and stay sober is one thing. And knowing that what you need to do to stay sober and continuing that same series of decisions is falls right into the exact realm of what fans of Sherlock Holmes know is most challenging to him, which is repetition, which is uh the the minutia of daily life and the monotony of daily life so i thought that was a really nice scene and uh i'm hoping it's not going to lead to a whole arc later at the end of the season for um of of his potential relapse just because i don't know that i'm as interested in that version of the show 
but I, I thought it was really nice here. So I wanted to mention, I wanted to mention it. Um, let, shall we move on to, to parenthood? How did we get here? How did we get here? Uh, Simon, do, I feel like while this is a very touching episode, uh, there's, is it? A, there's a lot of moments that I th- are really affecting. Yeah, it is. Because when you put Bonnie Bedelia, in an emotional situation, she's going to get the feels every time because she's really good. Um, but that doesn't mean that the, the that those are deserved or well-earned. Right. I mean, yeah, it. this is not the parenthood that we loved like a couple of seasons ago. Or even close to that, really. And I, I don't think there's really any chance it's going to get there before the end of the show happens in three... The fa- can you believe there are still three episodes left? Like, what are they going to do over three more episodes? We kind of laid out what we're kind of expecting to happen based on this episode with the rest of the season, and I, I hope to be surprised. But you know what I will say is certain um, certain moments land much more effectively than others, and I got to say the the conversation we get with uh, with Drew and Hank was very effective for me. Um, <laughs> uh, Hank's crush. Based, as you were as you phrased it on, on um, Joel is delightful. A lovely little bit of meta commentary there about how you want to hate Joel but you just can't because he's so nice. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot to like there. I also thought when they go to the luncheonette and it's just everything is just gone. Every, like I thought that was an effective moment as well. I kind of wish they had just fast forward to when Amber takes over for Adam and Adam goes to work at the school. But um, if they're going to need another three episodes for that to happen, then so be it. Uh, I hadn't even thought about them doing that. But yes, that is definitely the most likely occurrence. And the paper will raise itself, as you said. Uh, <laughs> but uh, little little Abby Jean or whatever. Uh, anyway, if it if it turns out to be Abby Jean, I'll eat a hat. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know. Everything involving Hank was great. His, I mean, the proposal was easy to see coming from a mile away, but it was nice. Uh, and very, very fitting for the character. Uh, I like that Ray Romano just kind of does whatever he wants now. Just like, I've got piles of money. I'm going to just go up, go on Parenthood and be this awesome character. And, and it'll it'll give us all a break from the goddamn Bravermans. Um, who, at this point, I don't really care what happens to any of them. And that's a very, very far place from where I was a couple seasons ago. Well, the trouble I have is that the Bravermans I am most interested in frequently are the ones who get the least screen time like i would love to be spending more time with jasmine jasmine is again jasmine's working um at her mom's firm or the, her mom's company i don't know i shouldn't say firm um as is as, as a temp right that's what she's doing right now and she's as a ridiculously well-paid temp yes yes is ridiculously well-paid but still you know uh she's overqualified for the position um and we know that her mom can be difficult and we're not seeing anything about that. We haven't spent any time with, with Crosby's kids in a while. And we certainly don't spend any time with Max here, one of my favorite characters. Um, so that doesn't help, especially when I, I want to like Joel and Julia, but this, I mean, the fact that they just have makeup sex and are apparently going to be fine now, uh, is really obnoxious. Uh, Can you imagine if like 12 episodes ago, I told you, Hey, uh, but you know, at one point they're just gonna bang; it'll be fine. Yeah, they're gonna <laughs> almost sign the papers and then not sign the papers, and instead have sex, and that's gonna make everything okay. That's how that ends. Yeah, it's just <laughs> that—that's the trouble. You know, just 
and, and again, there's characters that I'm more invested in and characters that I'm less invested in. And it tends to go, go down with, um, with what the writing has given the, again, I think this is a talented cast, but the writing needs to give them more. I don't care about Zeke guys. I really, I don't, I care that they care about Zeke, some of them. Um, but I don't, I don't care if he dies. And I think maybe that's because I, there are still early seasons of the show that I haven't seen. So maybe that's part of it, but that certainly is not helping with this, this very pivotal arc. No. And I think TV has spoiled us because so many shows have done great things and powerful things with death, including, I mean, Jason Kadams's previous drama. Uh, it did, I mean, that did incredible things with, uh, in one instance, the death of a character we had absolutely no reason to give a shit about. Um, whereas this, you know, the, 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 the death of Zeke, which is a thing that's going to happen. Uh, and if it doesn't, it'll be very strange. Um, it's taking so long and it's being made such a big deal out of by everyone that it kind of saps it of its power. Whereas, uh, when you can milk sort of the suddenness and the randomness and the cruelty of death, uh, among other, th among other ways you can do it, uh, that's where you can get some great pathos. But when you, when you turn it into a fucking death march over the course of a season, it kind of ruins it. Well, but oh, that's a story to tell as well. That that death doesn't always, you know, come walking dead style whenever no. you, the zombies, uh, as a surprise, it's always whenever someone can see the zombie coming, they're never going to die on The Walking Dead because one's going to pop up that they missed and that's going to be what kills them. So there's a, there's a story to tell there of of the exhaustion that comes and the uncertainty that comes with with caring for someone as they slowly die. And that's a compl that's a completely other type of devastating. But the show isn't doing that either. Yeah, no. I, I yeah, you're right that there there is a way to tell that story. It's just yeah, that's just not the one that parenthood is telling. It's it's doing a very familiar story instead in the most sort of schmaltzy and obvious way possible. Yeah, and that's not and again, that's not to say that that is not a story worth telling. There TV American TV does not seem particularly interested in uh in senior citizens or the the elderly and uh so I I think that they're it's good that there's trying to tell a story like this, that they're, you're looking, you have so much time spent with Zeke. It'd be nice if more time was spent with Camille. She's another of my favorite characters, often overlooked, often sidelined. Um, and, and what they're, you know, the kind of life that they need to, the decisions they have to make, like the stuff with the house last year. And with, uh, you know, I, th I think there are very interesting stories to tell that, I can't really think of another show that is actually willing and interested in telling those stories, but I think they need to do it better. Yeah. Well, it's not going to happen now. It's too late. It's well, we'll, we'll see. There's, I'm going to keep hope alive for the next three weeks. I, I don't know if we'll check in on parenthood before the finale. We'll definitely talk about the finale um, and, and uh, kind of look at the season then, but for now let's go on to the good wife and we're going to try to keep this. To 10 minutes we'll see how it goes guys because the good wife had its um second i guess mid-season finale uh the debate and ooh, uh todd vanderwerf wrote up uh the episode over at vox and called it the worst episode in years for the series and i kind of i don't know that i can disagree it's just it's not that it's offensively terrible necessarily at least to me but it's just such a misfire in pretty much every single way. 
I wouldn't say every single way. I think that uh, it has the the tragedy of this episode is that there there are dozens of individual moments that if you were to extract them from the episode would be great moments or like little comic flourishes here and there, individual lines, individual performances, individual beats that are all great. Uh, but that's lost because, and I have to just explain, um, I was watching this on in, here in Canada where The Good Wife airs on time because we are a civilized nation. And uh, so I was able to get my review up, uh, as far as I know, before anybody uh and i didn't get i didn't see any i saw hardly any reaction even before my review was done so i had no idea how yeah. people were going to take it we were all watching the globes and then uh <laughs> you sent me a message oh man i wish we were watching this at the same time and when when i saw the opening titled card that just said this was filmed before the events of i was like oh shit you know when you get that opening title of uh you know this was we wrote and shot this before uh before the uh, the contentious grand jury decisions, and when I say we, by the way, we're talking about the kings who are credited for this episode, which is a big deal. Um, and then we get that cell phone video. It's like holy shit! Like my jaw was on the floor. This is a this is a big fucking deal. <laughs> like this is this is a this is this is big. This is major for them to really be doing this. Then ultimately, the problem. And we'll talk about the semantics of this is uh, ultimately like this is kind of just another episode of The Good Wife. And that's disastrous because if you're going to be talking about these things, if you're going to have it theoretically be a central part of your episode to have this uh, other fictional case happen and then turn out in a similar way to those real ones, which I kind of feel like they were patting themselves on the back for guessing that. But whatever. Well, well, I'll put that aside. Um if, for for the, for these things to happen, but then for them to just be sort of uh, um, a driving force for shit that probably would have happened anyway was really ill-advised. Yeah, and I, it would be nice to not think about this because I want to not get angry at the good wife, but it's hard to not get angry at the good wife when they film... Uh, cell phone camera style um, video of a character being killed. Character uh, is is charitable. Yeah, of of a someone on their show. I don't know how to, how else to phrase that. Getting killed and touching uh, very distinctly on events of last year. Very, uh, you know, theoret. This is this is a good wife. These are the kings with their eyes open. And then does not give a shit that that happened. <laughs> so the kings don't care that this character, this person they've created has been killed. Nobody on their show cares. They, the, the show is happy to moralize, have some, many of its very white characters moralize on the issue. But ultimately, they're all way more interested in what they're doing. With, with like the details of their life, of their campaign, of their merger, of their whatever, of their affair, than they are about uh, what happened. I want to say it's Cole something is the guy who the, who gets killed at the start of this episode. Who we get to see his death. Uh, so that's thanks for that, the Kings. But I would be very surprised if the name is ever mentioned again. If the characters even really remembered the, this this person's name, 
by the end of the episode. And it would be one thing if the episode was criticizing the characters for this, but it's not. Uh, well, I don't know if that's completely true. I would say that um, there are some really, again, there are some individually great moments when David Lee shows up and is just like, oh, great. I'm going to have a hard time getting home tonight. And that's his response to the situation. Uh, that's a good character moment in relation to uh, to the events. Uh, that's a sharp way to handle it. I think that if they had severely downplayed uh, the events, if they if they had not had a cell phone video reenactment and not had mm. everyone be waiting for for the jury decision and found a way to have uh, the characters' reactions to the to, to the events be a commentary on their disconnect from everything, that could have worked. I could see that working. Or you go all the way uh, to the other side and you have them be involved, directly involved in the case and, you know, go full, very special episode with it and like stop the stop the time of, you know, the of the many gears that are working for the season and just do this. That could have worked. But this in between thing was a really fucking bad idea. Yeah, it really really is and yeah what you mentioned for you know that david lee moment that is that works very well and we start to get some really interesting stuff with eli when they you know trot out a character i forgot that that was an actual character recurring character on the show i had to yep, consult i did too some notes uh that starts to be a really interesting conversation that then goes away um and uh, is never brought up again you have two white characters talking to each other about the issue the problems with race in america to a group of brown people and then and then you have the then you have the the all uh of course the only place they could find african-american and latinos and, and the ca characters for the to have these characters interact with this is of course in the kitchen of course that's the only place you could find that demographic in this world of the show. And then you have them, one of the, the audience say, you're just a bunch of white people. Why are you trying to say what this experience means, what this is about? And then you realize that it was, that was written by a bunch of white people. <laughs> and the show uh... doesn't seem to understand that that maybe is, a, you know, a problem or an issue. I mean, it's, it's so hard because you almost feel like the show is trying to address its own limitations, mm -hmm. which is ballsy. And, uh, and I mean, the show has always had this element of, of metacriticism and auto critique and that's laudable, I guess. But the way that they go about it in this episode just for once does not work at all. They just, they, this is the one, the one issue that I think the good wife just had no good way of handling and shouldn't have even tried, to be honest. You know what they could have done? They could have had some of the characters shut up and listen instead of just all talking at each other. Yeah, but that's not the good wife style. The, 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 I mean, if, if nothing else, I mean, uh, this is something it has in common with, with Sorkin and Sorkinese. These characters love to talk and they love to talk about what they what they purport to believe. And, you know, for them to stop doing that would be out of character with the show, which is one of the one of many reasons this was not a good issue for them to tackle. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned Sorkin. This is very reminiscent to me of uh, Isaac and Ishmael, Ishmael, which is the West Wing episode where 
basically the the characters sit down also in the kitchen and explain to a bunch of children uh, I think I think there's like a tour group or something uh why 911 happened <laughs> um and it's uh you know or you know that's that's what it ends up feeling like and it just turns into a series of lectures by a bunch of rich white people about what the rest of the world thinks um and and so when you have this episode at various points turn into a bunch of rich white people telling a room of of not rich of of distinctly poor lower class middle class not white people what the problems with uh racism are in this country and seemingly not self-aware about that that's that's the problem and this... or or i would say just self-aware enough to be infuriated <laughs> <laughs> to be like you should know better the good wife but that's the thing it's not unlike the west wing episode that that takes up the whole app you know that, that's the entirety of isaac and ishmael this uh it gets shoved into one tiny corner of an episode that has many many other problems including I thought we already saw Peter break up with Ramona. We we saw that happen, but apparently now we're supposed to care that it's happened again. Uh, and then there's there's uh, Carrie and um, Diane just bringing David Lee on, and we're supposed to be frustrated with Alicia because she's because uh, they're trying to run the firm and she's not contributing. Except that Carrie just. They have his welcome back party in this episode. So that means he can't possibly have been carrying his own weight because he legally wasn't allowed to. So clearly Alicia's been helping out a lot because Carrie hasn't been able to. But then now the first day Carrie's back at work, he's able to say that Alicia, we don't need to consult her for decisions. I mean, come on. And then Alicia has to go and play the, the sexism card in a way that, feel again if the show if they wanted us to feel like she's overreaching or this is not she's not right in this moment they failed yeah they they really failed that that's that whole sequence is a disaster in a completely separate way from the rest of the episode um i don't know what they were thinking with that and like there are there have been some issues with King's penned episodes, but in general, they're at least spectacularly entertaining and uh, never insulting. And this was insulting throughout. And I don't know what happened, but it it, it is it was absolutely a, a meltdown. If anything, I think my review may have been too kind, and it may, it may have been, uh, you know, a a byproduct of uh just being out there first and and not being bold enough to just be like yeah no guys but yeah no guys this was there was very little that was that's good about this and the, the and the good things were purely sort of incidental and not that important yeah and, and another thing i have to add to the no, just no guys pile and this is speculative so i reserve the the right to withdraw but i'm hearing rumblings on twitter that matthew good may be leaving the good wife i think because isn't he's on Downton Abbey now or something? What? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. However, if that is the case, and this thing that they're doing with Pasquale is with her campaign manager is because 
they no longer have are going to have Matthew good, so they can't continue the Finn Alicia stuff. I'm gonna be pissed. That would be, okay. I don't. I I, uh, I I'm 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 angry that that might even be a thing, because actually it didn't even occur to me until just now that Finn's not in this episode. Yeah. And uh, I feel like if he had been there, he would have found a way to fix all this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and- I don't know how. Yeah, and I'm watching this episode, and we have Alicia talking to this man that she just grabbed and kissed, you know, against his will in the last episode, and telling him, uh, oh, it's a, put a smile on there, baby. It's fine. I'm not interested in you, so it's not, therefore, the fact that I just grabbed and kissed you doesn't matter, and you should just get over it. And then she has the fucking gall to claim sexism at the end of the episode. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Uh, in conclusion, uh, let's hope that, I mean, I- I'll be very curious to see what the Kings have to say if they haven't said anything yet about the re- the toxic reception towards this episode, because I feel like this has basically never happened. Mm-hmm. Like, I-, I really can't think of a precedent. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I honestly would not be surprised if after the midseason break, they just Poochie do a do-over. went to his home planet and was never heard from again. No, like, seriously, like, like they they show a new version of the cell phone video and the guy is totally fine. Yeah. And, and it just, none of that shit ever happened. Oh, yeah. And again, many of my issues with this episode could have been remedied if it didn't feel like the show was trying to tell us that characters were behaving correctly, that like that it agreed mm-hmm. with them. So if the show was making, uh, if, if it felt like Alicia was being uh, just Peter 2.0 in her treatment of her underlings uh, and her sexual misconduct towards her, her employees in that scene with the, the, the campaign manager, great. But that's not what it's doing. And if uh, if it felt like the show thought Carrie and Diane were overreaching with David, uh, the David Lee thing, especially Carrie, given everything that's happened, um, that would be one thing. But it doesn't. I mean, there's a real there's a real mis- uh, un- unbalance between what I think the show should be saying and what the show is saying. And that doesn't mean that it's the show's fault, but it's really affecting my ability to uh, enjoy at least this episode. Yeah. So in conclusion, uh, it's funny when I started reviewing the good wife, uh, I was afraid about um, just being overwhelmed by an episode uh, just because the good wife can get up to so much in the space of, you know, an hour with commercials uh, this is not what I meant when I yeah. said that. This is yeah. not this is not a thing that I thought would happen. Certainly. Uh, yeah. So um, when you come back, Kings, don't do that again. We'll forgive you if you don't do that and you keep Matthew Good around. Because oh my God, if you if you lose Finn, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna lose it, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's not that's not a thing that's allowed to happen. So someone who knows what's going on with that, as long as what you're going to email us is that uh, they have him locked down for at least the rest of the season. Please email us. Well, uh, Simon, in a rarity here, I have no idea what you're going to pick. What wins your weekend drama? Because it sure ain't the good wife. 
Yeah, the Good Wife Award goes to... I'll give it to Banshee. Fuck it. It's obviously not going to the Good Wife and or Parenthood, so yeah, it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, I did very much enjoy the, the one-two uh, of, of Agent Carter, but I think I'll give it to Elementary this week. And Banshee was a lot of fun, too. The premiere was certainly a lot of fun. But I think I'll give it to Elementary just for those couple of quiet scenes that we got with Sherlock and Joan. Oh, man. Uh, a few show notes here. You can find a post-up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can uh, drop us a line and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can also email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can find us in iTunes where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. And we're also up in Facebook where you can like uh, the, our page to follow the goings-on at Soundonsite TV as well as, of course, the two of us. And then we are both up on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, And Simon, you are? Uh, at Sucker Howl. And what is our question of the week? Uh, inspired by The Good Wife. Um, I'm wondering if there's an episode of a show that you love that you just pretend doesn't exist. Oh, yeah. Every show has one of those. Come on. Yeah, but is there any Black that, Market? that particularly... <laughs> oh, Black Market. <laughs> like, you know, if you don't actually even have to say the name of the show... And people know what you're talking about. That's a good one. Or um, for some people, it's beer bad. I don't really have too much of a problem with that. But there's certainly a few <clears throat> gems in, in the Buffy canon. Um, uh, what comes to mind for you, sir? Uh, what's the one from Lost about Jack's tattoos? Oh, God, yeah. An um, another place, another time, something like that? Yeah. Woo. Yeah, and then, of course, there is... Um, there's... <laughs> The scene that doesn't exist from Game of Thrones last season just didn't happen. Yeah, that that doesn't count. Uh, I mean, I mean a whole episode, and a I mean whole. a show that you adore, that you is like is like Desert Island Disc kind of thing. Hmm. But just you, but you'll if you could locate the the episode on the disc itself, just scratch it out, maybe. Okay, uh, yeah, and in in a show where there's just like one, yeah, as or or, or one that towers above the rest, yeah. Okay, I think that's a fun question of the week. I look forward because there are certain shows where there are there are a few, but then you know you just the show didn't necessarily maintain that quality. Like for the X Files, for example, you know you have you have the cats, <laughs> the demon cats. Uh, so you know there's that, but then there's also several seasons worth of uh, right, malaise yeah. at the end. So it's you know it's. That's not yeah, as you're, yeah. You're really looking for that one piece of shit in a diamond season. I mean, I do think I do. I mean, how how do you argue with with the what is that episode even called? Do you remember? No, I don't. You don't remember the you don't remember the cats episode of? No, uh, oh, I remember what I remember. I don't remember what it's called. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so I look forward to hearing people's picks because that's a that's a great question of the week. Um, now we're gonna take a break and we're gonna come back with Sean Coletti of of the Midseason Replacements podcast and the End of the Hood podcast to talk about Carlos, the t 2010 uh, miniseries by Olivier Assayas. We'll be right back after this. Like you, I strongly believe that the struggle should take on an international level, and will be more than honored to contribute with some of my modest skills. You are still a boy. I need men. So you don't trust me because I'm young? You have to prove yourself. Choose a code name. I already have. Terror. Blackmail. The taking of civilian hostages. Every Western intelligence service has its eyes on you. 
used to making women drunk, aren't you? You need me. My name is Feared. I've been planning this operation for months. Why are you to talk to me like that? I decide whether you must be eliminated or not. For me, there's no going back. You have become a star. I am honored to meet the famous Carlos. I would have preferred a spectacular operation. I can give you the chance to do that. Anyone who doesn't obey our orders immediately will be executed. <laughs> you go they will find you living under the fear and the loneliness how do you expect it to end my name is carlos you may have heard of me we're back with the televerse this is kate kalsik joined as ever by simon howell and this week on the dvd shelf i'm very excited to welcome back former co-host mr sean coletti sean welcome back all right feels like home well i know that our our Listeners will be um, very excited to have you, have you back on the podcast because we've been teasing our the, the triumphant return of Sean and our long-awaited um, Legend of Korra DVD shelf, Avatar The Last Airbender. I don't know exactly how we're going to do that yet. That's going to happen, but I'm sorry, gentle listeners, not quite yet. Because first, uh, we're going to be talking about a miniseries. Uh, I, I think there was a, a separate edit that came out uh, as a film, but... Uh, we're going to be talking about the, the miniseries edit of this film that aired on Sundance back a few years ago, and that's Carlos. And uh, I remember watching this when it aired. We did not have uh, DVR, so I must have watched it live at that point um, and really enjoying it back in, in 2010. Um, Sean, what made you want to talk about Carlos? Uh, multiple reasons. I think on the personal level, I, I remember watching the film version of this back when it came out in 2010 here. And that, I think, was my number two film from the year. So I remember really liking it, but I hadn't seen it since then. And I also hadn't seen the full-length miniseries. So watching this for the DVD shelf is actually the first time that I'd seen the full thing. Looking at it uh, more generally, it also has kind of unfortunate relevance now, considering world events within the past year. So I think there's a lot of interesting things to talk about here. Yeah, there, there's certainly, yeah, there's certainly timely elements to to the film. Um the line between fiction and and reality for this film is very, or this miniseries, we should say, is really interesting um, because of the title card that that opens this miniseries, which basically says, yeah, this is based on a real guy, but there's so much of this that we can't really factually know that you should just look at this as this should be considered a fictionalized account. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, well, first of all, Simon, have, had you seen Carlos previously? And how did that influence your your, your viewing of the miniseries? Um, I saw Carlos initially because uh, I believe it was the first year I, I got screeners uh, for, for awards consideration through the OFCS. IFC were kind enough to send me uh, the full three three-part version on DVD, three separate discs. Um, in amidst the package with a bunch of other films. And there was no other way to see the film for me at the time. So it was uh, one of the coolest things I've ever gotten. And uh, at the time, I think I'd, I'd probably, I'd seen a, a couple of other um, films from the from this director and also co-writer Olivier Assayas, uh, one of which is called Boarding Gate, starring Asia Argento, which I know some people uh, love and I thought was absolute bullshit. And, um, <laughs> and another one that was completely different from both th from either of the films from either that film or this one called Summer Hours, which was absolutely beautiful, 
and one of my very favorite films of that year. Um, so I really had no idea what to expect. And, you know, when we're talking about um, this film, which uh, we should mention, one, uh, you know, the Golden Globes are airing tonight. They actually gave this best miniseries uh, back in 2010, which was a bit of a surprise to me. But um, when we're talking about the, the, the fictionalization aspects, um, SAS and his co-writers, uh, as I understand, this was originally going to be a 90 minute feature. That's what they planned. <laughs> and oh, silly boys. And um, is it the first part of three an hour and a half? Isn't that the first? Film? Yeah, because yeah. they were originally going to only cover one event. I'm assuming the OPEC grade, which makes up which makes up about half of the middle part. Uh, but then the more he read about him, the more he thought, hey, uh, there's something really interesting about uh, Carlos, uh, the Jackal, a.k.a. Ilyich, a.k.a. a bunch of other things, uh, played by Edgar Ramirez. There's so much going on in this guy's life, and he represents so much. Uh, why not dive deep with him? So what they did was uh, he and his co-writers did uh, exhaustive research. They uh, they went into some documents that were only available after uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, etc., etc. Uh, they even uh, got some audio recordings from the Stasi, which is where apparently some of the dialogue comes from. <laughs> so uh, when so he I mean the intertitle I think airs on the side of. Uh, making us not think about it too much, but it's also very clearly the result of exhaustive research to the point where, uh, you know, when when you think about uh, TV movies, TV shows, and films uh, dealing with real life subjects, th there's a there's a lot of sort of uh, familiar shorthands that we have just sort of come to expect. And I think what's great about Carlos is that most of those are not present. There is no sentimentality. There is no uh, easy characterization. There's just a lot of uh, there's just a whole lot of incident over a whole lot of time, uh, and and a lot of it is just very complicated and naughty, and uh, that's K N, naughty, <laughs> not like yeah. finger wagging, naughty, um, <laughs> and uh, and as uh, SAS and other people involved with the film have stated, it, like it really shows you the evolution of uh, of terrorism over over decades, you know, in, in the the actions that Carlos is a part of. Uh, on behalf of uh, of the Palestinian cause, in the first uh, let's say two parts mostly, um, those uh, you know those those sorts of actions uh, don't look the same anymore, and they don't ha happen on on the same sort of stage. And where Carlos finds himself in that third part is is so different from uh, from from the sort of the sort of show show off you you know theoretically like believably high minded. Uh, places that he could have come up could have come from in the first place and watching edgar ramirez uh take on this guy's life is just is just incredible and the fact that he's not everywhere now is fucking stupid <laughs> well uh, that is one of the the elements that i i really uh keyed into this time watching it because i remember really enjoying i mean not liking the character of course but really appreciating the miniseries when i first saw it and of course that's 2010 that's like we had i hadn't started at sound on site yet this was you know this was a different uh stage in my cinematic development or my appreciation of film and and television obviously i still watched way too much of it and had way too many opinions maybe but but this was unlike something i this is unlike anything i'd seen at the time i hadn't seen very many miniseries at all let alone uh, something so focused as this one to really follow that character through these different stages of his life but the fact that there isn't a 
you know, a tragic story of this main, this character's um, dark past that leads him on this, you know, path to, to, to fighting for the Palestinian cause. There's, like, I think you could be forgiven for not realizing who he's theoretically fighting, air quotes, for when you watch these first two, because it doesn't, he doesn't seem to bring up, he says the cause and stuff a lot, and especially in the early portion of, of the, the miniseries, but he doesn't really seem very interested or concerned with what the actual situation is. He, he doesn't talk about the Palestinian conflict and all this. He just throws out the word bourgeois a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so like, it's, I really appreciated that that aspect of the miniseries. And, of course, it, yes, this is based on a lot of research, but I don't know how accurate that is to, to the man. But as a character, I found it very interesting and sort of uh, refreshing. Uh, Sean, what about you? Well, what both of you are talking about, I think um, something that informs the portrayal of this character and also the kind of story that it's telling, uh, it has to do, I think, on a very basic level um, that this is an international production. I think that we as television viewers don't really get too many imports from other countries. And when we do, oftentimes they're really good. And even if that's just one aspect, like the stylization of the return, I think most people will agree, you know, that's a beautifully shot series, even if some people uh, have trouble gripping with certain things with the story or whatever. Uh, but that exposure what is another reason why I wanted to talk about this is because when there are things like this available and just the way it's shot as well, I know we have a lot of talented filmmakers coming to TV doing things like True Detective or doing pilot episodes like Believe or anything like that. But to have filmmaking talent like this come and do a miniseries and to have it be international, I think that that gives us something different to chew on, which is why viewers might expect a certain kind of tragic story and get something else entirely. And I think some of the the ways in which we talk about TV as American TV viewers, um, those start to become less relevant because all of a sudden some of our typical concerns when we look at things having to do with narrative, having to do with character development, those aren't necessarily things that Carlos is interested in, um, or at least not as much as other things that it's interested in. And like both of you have said, Edgar Ramirez's performance in this is, is at the center of everything. And I, I totally agree with Simon that he should be everywhere because his incredibly multifaceted performance here is just very, very impressive. Well, and when you're talking about uh, this as, uh, as, a, as a European sort of co- it's a French German co-production, and for anyone who's curious, uh, here's the list of languages that appear in this film, according to Wikipedia. Uh, we've got English, French, Arabic, German, Spanish, Japanese, Hungarian, and Russian, uh, several of which uh, Edgar Ramirez, of course, uh, speaks pretty pretty freaking fluently throughout the film. Another sort of uh, superficially impressive thing about the performance. I do wonder, though, um, you know, this the film does have a distinctly European flair uh, throughout. I mean... It, if only, and I'm sorry, but I have to keep mentioning this throughout the year, uh, we, we get some dick on the screen in this film. <laughs> I wondered how, how long how... it would take. <laughs> <laughs> how refreshing. Uh, s- such such a gloriously unvain uh, set of set of nude scenes from Edgar Ramirez in this film. But anyway, um, peen on the screen in 15. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I do wonder, 
if the existence of this film isn't owed to uh, somewhat to the international rep of the wire, which uh, isn't uh, it, that that's a thing. Like it, it's been discussed in uh, in European film magazines for years, and Carlos isn't the only one. Like uh, there there was another uh, two part film called Merin, which was not very good. Uh, there was sort of another attempt to do like an epic length uh, s- sort of, you know, story of a, of a famous criminal. Uh, but I think what this film gets right uh, about sort of the influence of The Wire, if that is what's going on, is it, it manages to have that same sort of comprehensive uh, feel to it. Because, you know, we do, we do sort of follow varying perspectives when it's appropriate. It doesn't have the sort of uh, classical storytelling vibe of The Wire. There's no... Dickensian aspect, if you want to put it that way. But I wonder if uh, if the inspiration for this level of detail over time came from uh, came from the the European dissemination of the wire. That's very interesting because I, I one of the things for me watching this that really struck me is that the progression of the character, if you took out all the terrorism, uh, feels <laughs> feels very um, organic. And like any number of character pieces we've seen, this is somebody who starts out as this brash young man with all of these big ideas, big talker. And yeah, you know, one of the things I find really interesting in the early part of the miniseries is he gets two months where he has to hide out. Basically, he falls off the the proselytizing wagon and just, and you get a quick foreshadow of who he's going to be later. And so you find when we, when we reach the end of the story and he's this seemingly very different man, I I really appreciate the way that that is foreshadowed or shown to be, no, this is just who this guy has always been. He's just, you know, when he was younger, he had more pretense. He was better at lying to himself about it. So I, I find it really very interesting, and I, and I think one of the strengths of this miniseries is that, yes, it's a story about a very famous, uh, notorious, I should say, uh, terrorist, and and at the center of it is this very famous um, uh, event, the OPEC raid, but really it's the story of a very recognizable type of character, type of person who just happened to do particularly notorious things, but isn't, there's no mystique to him. There's no, like we said, there's no romanticization of this. This is, we know, we went to high school with people like this who just weren't terrorists. (laughs) Well, I mean, and I think that this is something that SAS specifically spoke of, and I think it's really well reflected in the film where people, uh, for for decades, uh, you know, n- not just with the code name, he did have a mystique. You know, he, he was, Carlos was perceived as, you know, the, the this almost, uh, uh, I wouldn't say, maybe not transcendent, but sort of uh, the sort of iconic figure of, of European terrorism to the point where he was almost sort of chic. And I think what the film does really well is uh, through this exhaustive research and through positioning him and all these other uh, these other players specifically throughout the film, uh, it really makes clear that often it came down to luck. The fact that he, like, yeah, he is he is cold-blooded as hell, and he does what he has to do uh, for, for his perspective to get out with, with his skin uh, in various situations, and that's obviously helpful. But had certain things gone slightly differently, in so many occasions, he would have ended up like so many of his comrades, dead or in jail. Uh, and, you know, he's still alive. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's he's still around. Like he's not free or anything. But you know, and that's owing most not necessarily to cunning at all times. Oh no, that's really down to luck because there are several missions that did go absolutely wrong that he could have been a part of uh, had he been in a different position on the hierarchy. Yeah, the going off of what you were saying, Kate, about um, the progression of this character. Yeah, th- that it's foreshadowed, I think, is really great because he is essentially who he is at the beginning. Um, that's the same person that, that he'll remain at his core throughout this miniseries. And, and what's really satisfying on some level to see is how the world around him changes and that chic that, that Simon said is developed around him, this mystique, that that gets to his head and it goes away. And to see somebody like this become irrelevant um, it's, that's probably a trope that we're familiar with, but it's it's looked at from a perspective where um, none of that, I guess, that that progression isn't important in terms of the story. It's more like we're looking from the outside and, and noticing that as viewers and then just seeing the proud parts of this character kind of just start to look almost embarrassing and pathetic in some ways. Oh, well, mm-hmm. I definitely. I mean, I would double down on that personally. I would say uh, very pathetic at, at at particular times. But I mean, and it's not to take away from Ramirez's performance that, the, that there is a core to this character that is absolutely there from the very beginning. Because we watch the we watch the main character here, Carlos, we watch him over time become more aware of what we see immediately he buys into his shtick completely he's so full of himself at the very be like it, it he seems to care way more about getting laid than he does whatever cause he's fighting for right um he's very in love with the idea of the jet setting international terrorist i mean like the the disdain with which he he um treats cuz cuz in especially early on when he's at his most um uh, when he when he most believes his own legend or the legend he wants to see have for himself, we watch him uh, ask each of his different contacts what their day job is basically. And when the, when the one guy says he works in a bookshop and the one woman is a maid and all these different things, you can he's just so uh, he's scornful of them and you can see this pre like this. Uh, we'll see because they're not really these international men of violent mystery uh whereas right. whereas i am it's like he he sees this he believes his own mystique and at the beginning and by the end we just watch that chip like you say john just chip away over the course of the miniseries until by the end he's he's completely aware of who and what he is and he's just trying to to not die yeah and i think that well and uh, so there's sort of another central irony where uh, you were talking about, Kate, about how he never seems to talk about his ideology. And, uh, you know, midway through the film, one of his uh, one of his former comrades, Angie, uh, who actually the real-life counterpart of ended up being uh, a fixture in documentaries about terrorism because he renounced political violence um, uh, a little while before he went to jail. And uh, at, at a certain point, Angie is talking about uh, wanting to fight Zionism but not be an anti-Semite, and he's actually trying to make like a relatively nuanced political point. It's like, wow, <laughs> I think this is the first time someone in this film has tried to make a nuanced political argument. <laughs> and um, and yeah, he 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 cares 
very much, a, he, you know, he purports to care very much about whatever cause it is he's fighting for, but he doesn't care a whit uh, for actual individual humans uh, other than as part of their perceived utility or lack of utility to him. He spends, there, there are a lot of scenes of him saying, no, this person's garbage or Nada is crazy and I don't want to work with her, uh, etc. Uh, in various circumstances. Um, but other than that, he doesn't care or, or, or if someone's betrayed him, he'll talk about that. But especially with the, with the many women in his life, they're nothing more than, uh, you know, fuck puppets really. If I, if I can be allowed to, to use, to use the term. And I, I, he, he doesn't put too fine a point on it, but I almost feel like SIS could not restrain himself from including all those, uh, degrading sex scenes. If only, to underline the irony of him being crippled by some sort of testicular issue. <laughs> yeah, that was a great final touch there. Um, and for me, one of the most defining pieces of dialogue that comes from Carlos in, in the miniseries is how he's convinced pretty much from the get-go that he's going to be killed. That will be the end of his story. He's aware of that. <laughs> and because that defines how he lives his life up until that point. And, and we yeah, know it's going to be a blaze of glory. <laughs> And once it finishes, we know that's not the case. So it's looking at that psychologically and seeing how all of his decisions are kind of based off of that worldview, I think is really fascinating. Well, yeah. And he's the, the, the way he is captured. It's such an anticlimax for a man who has envisioned the end of Scarface for his blaze of glory ending. Um, and no, you just go to sleep and you'll wake up in jail. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what's going to happen. Uh, yeah. And again, it's the kind of thing that, Obviously, they did their research and they they know what happened, how he was how he was apprehended, and then it fits. It seems to be very fitting with this figure to have imagined this larger than life, and then you can just easily create a clear narrative. It seems like you, you can't write this stuff. You can write this stuff, and it just also happened that in this case, it's incredibly fitting and it feels absolutely authentic. I mean. Again, who knows, but it seems like it's a very logical fit with, with the character as presented and as researched. Um, you mentioned earlier, Simon, I was wondering how long it was going to take for us to talk about uh, the, all the penis shots in this, uh, this miniseries. And I remember when I first saw the film, because I, I think... No, I, I did see the miniseries version, but uh, because that just... Again, being an American viewer of TV not having watched a lot of international television at the time when I first saw this, the first full frontal uh, nudity scene just kind of comes out of nowhere. They don't yep. warn you. It's just, and naked taking a bath, penis. Uh, and and I, re <laughs> I remember watching this the first time being like, oh, God, okay, what's going, what's going on? And only later does it, do, do you realize what they're doing? They're establishing this, picture of of virile strength he's got ridiculous six-pack and he's like in in the the prime of youth and everything so that they can contrast it later uh with what's with with the way it progresses but the when i was re-watching this for the segment i was just like of course this is our first dvd shelf in 2015 after simon just requested <laughs> towards the end of last year that we need to see more full frontal male nudity on our, our right. tv uh, there is a little coming later this year on a show that we we talk about every week, Simon. I'll tease that for you, but um, phrasing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, it's it's. 
I really just, again, this is such a thing we are not used to seeing on American television uh, that it feels refreshing to just be like, yeah, guys, it's a naked person. It's not a big deal. Um, how did it, when you were watching this again, Sean, is this something, how do you feel like the treatment of the of nudity is in this miniseries? Did it take you by surprise the way it did me when I first saw it? Um, well, I mean, I, I just watched, uh, finally watched the director's cut of Nymphomaniac recently, so oh, <laughs> not, shit. not exactly. But, um, <laughs> I know what that means. Not yeah. everyone knows what that means, but I know no. what that means. The juxtaposition here is really, really wonderful to see because, yeah, the what you were talking about, that first full frontal, um, you know, he's looking in the mirror. He's probably thinking, yeah, I'm Carlos. And then he starts grabbing his junk to contrast that with what with the end of this miniseries where um, anybody who does touch his junk, it, it causes him immense pain. And just to see where his body's at at that point, you know, it's it, I having been, um, I guess, immersed in as much international film as i could have been in the past decade i I think that's mostly where my uh my film interest lies it's not surprising but certain directors do it much better than others um i think gaze is always something worth looking into and i think that in this case it it really adds to defining the character i think and i do think another thing we should mention with this when we're talking about uh the juxtaposition between different points in the film is another thing with edgar ramirez's uh performance he wants to put on like 50 pounds oh it's re- it's insane i just hope that cuz you mentioned the sequence where he has to go into hiding uh for a while and then you see him just like in a shack with some booze on the ground and it just looks like shit and I, I just hope that was the first thing they filmed, I, <laughs> not the last. Well, yeah, I mean, I just hope they filmed it at the same time they filmed him being uh, fat again and old. <laughs> just change his hair. and Right, yeah, exactly. Because if he, if he gained the weight and then lost the weight and then gained the weight again, that would be insane. Yeah, but no, it's just another level of... There, there are, the, the thing with Edgar Ramirez's performance is it's impressive in a lot of the showy ways that we're familiar with. But it's also impressive in a lot of much subtler ways that we're not as used to. So it's like it's 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 got layers. Absolutely. But uh, there, there's a few other things we need to mention. I mean, we, we've sort of skirted around this, but I think that the the staging of many sort of key events uh, that do, some of which don't even involve Carlos, but some of the key sort of attacks, including this uh, this failed one in an airport, um, the staging of those sequences is, is remarkable, and I think that SAS. Uh, has a real skill for mounting these sequences where like they're uh they're done with minimum fuss and uh but they're, but they're still like quite you can they're they're easy to follow and they're never they're never more unbelievable than the facts of the situation themselves like like yes these guys really did just walk into a crowded airport and take out a rocket launcher and then try to take out a plane it, like if if it wasn't for the context of the, if if that happened on homeland someone would be like dude no one would ever try to do that that's so fucking stupid but these guys really did it and it's just it's it's portrayed in this very straightforward way it's like okay this is just sort of how it happened and it, i i think it really it's just one of the ways in which the, the film feels uh more like a journalism piece than sort of than you know a, a biopic or a historical film i'm really glad that you used that description because i, I couldn't agree with that more uh with certain scenes, you know, you can utilize soundtrack or um, 
camera angle to accentuate certain things and and give off an impression. And I think journalistic is really what the film goes for most of the time. And if you compare it to, sadly, videos of recent events uh, that have leaked, it, it's kind of really just blunt violence in that same way without being sensationalized. And that, to me, was probably the best direction to go here for this kind of story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also wanted to mention the uh, the soundtrack. It's got a lot of great sort of uh, late, mid to late 70s to early 80s uh, post-punk happening in this film. Uh, some of it, some of it is repeated, but there's like a few songs by, by Wire and a couple by the Feelies. Uh, the Dead Boys Sonic Reducer turns up at one point. I think it's, they're, they're not too obvious choices for like the sort of, I think sort of helping to give certain scenes that undercurrent of the mystique that Carlos thinks he has. Uh, which I really dug. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that as well. The the choices here, especially, I'm not familiar with a lot of the songs, but whichever one was playing when, when Nada was taken in was fantastic. Also, just one of the ones at the very beginning um, where we see Carlos come out, I think, of a house and he's being escorted and searched. Just the the quickening pace of whatever track that was. That's uh, he, Crazy Rhythms by the Feelies. Good song. That was crazy good to use oh. upon uh yeah because that that immediately puts you into like a very attentive state and now you're just totally on board if that cold open didn't do it for you already i mean these are certain of these events and, and there's a the a combination of some what appears to be original footage from the time that i think really lends to some of these sequences but some of the things that happened in this miniseries are very famous events, very well-known events. And the the energy that the scoring and the cinematography and the, the I should say, the editing lends a, a sequence like, like the, OPEX, the OPEX raid is absolutely gripping and completely... Uh, completely successful. It, it, that section of the, the miniseries is so strong that it, if one is not interested in watching a full depiction of this of this figure over a large if you're not invested and interested in that character but are more just kind of watching it to to see this mini series about the you know famous terrorist guy it, i could see how that that central set piece is so effective that it makes the other stuff pale in comparison for me i'm much more interested in the progression and in you know the before and the after um but it, it's remarkably shot and and uh executed sequence yeah well i think you know people uh talk about how exciting sort of the the ramp up to that is and the actual of course raid and the the taking of the hostages and like that's that stuff is all you know really really well executed and really tense uh, in all the ways that you'd expect but it's almost not the point like the stuff that i find more uh more relevant to what the story is up to is the part after that when they when they get their their the jet that they demanded and oh no they can't go to baghdad because uh this kind of this kind of plane that they requested doesn't fly that far because they just they fucked up (laughs) they it's just it's just not the right kind of plane to do that they needed a long-range plane and they don't have a long-range plane and they can't get a long-range plane so they just kind of boing around from airstrip to airstrip for a solid what feels like almost the rest of that part of the film but i don't know at least half an hour it's just them the pilots just getting exhausted and frustrated and just like 
I, I love when he doesn't shake Carlos's hand. Just like, come on, dude. <laughs> Just, and like a lot there's just like ev- there are so many great little beats in there it's just like this is what uh this is like the nitty-gritty of of what uh trying to do this sort of thing would have been like at the time it was just like a lot of hassle mostly absolutely well we've do we have any uh final thoughts on this miniseries um and uh Perform. I mean, I I still just keep going back to, as well uh, done as so much of this miniseries is. I for me, just so much of it comes back to that performance. Do we have any final thoughts on Carlos? There was one line that I that I laughed out loud at that I don't think I even noticed the first time I watched it. Where uh, late in the film, um, I want to say it, it's early third part. Carlos is having an argument with like the umpteenth woman that he shacked up with in this film about uh, him uh, having sex with prostitutes. And she says to him, uh, oh, you, you want to meet up with one of those with one of those prostitutes you picked up in a hotel lobby? And his response is, well, where else am I supposed to pick them up? <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, Archer should be taking notes. Anyway, I just I, there, the movie doesn't get enough credit for occasionally being funny. So I wanted to point that out. Oh, man, you just mentioned Archer. I was thinking about Archer during one of the moments as well, because what this is last uh, premiere Archer basically just said, oh things just tend to go right for me, you know, and uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of what happens with Carlos as well. Um, I, I don't necessarily know if I have any final thoughts to, to add to the discussion without going political. I would just, you know, really encourage viewers and listeners um, to check this out because it is one of those rare instances in which uh, it's on Netflix. So it's available to most American viewers and it, it's important to see international stuff like this. I think. Are you sure I can't tempt you into going a little bit political? <laughs> um, do we want to go there? <laughs> you are so. welcome to. Televerse is not cosine. I'm staying out of it. <laughs> I mean, there one of the attacks does happen on uh, not a satirical publication, but a publication nonetheless, and obviously that that becomes incredibly relevant now. So I think the issues here have to do with looking at how we engage with the character of Carlos and because there's a lot of ways in which that he's, he's portrayed that, that humanizes him recognizably for us. And, and then um, you just have to be active, I guess, and analyzing it. Otherwise, because you can't generalize, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I don't know. I, I, I hesitate to, to come down hard on anything here. Okay. We're we're in three different places. It would be very difficult to coordinate attack against the Televerse. <laughs> <laughs> Terrorism is bad, MK. That's that's about all I got. I mean, because the and and I think the choice to the the way that the the, the miniseries it, it goes out of its way to make him a small and incredibly recognizable figure, which I feel like is enough of a statement on its own. Uh, it doesn't need to go into more. Um, yeah, it's this guy just goes around killing people. He just goes around throwing bombs into buildings. This is obviously a terrible person. Um, but the way that the film is happy to let you fall into the glamorous side of his life, especially early on, and not just not keep not underline, you know, the 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 bloodshed, not underline. Uh, and not, you know, keep the camera on the building as it explodes and people walk out, but instead stay on Carlos. Some of those choices uh, keep it from feeling didactic and 
and, and I mean, it's maybe it's not the most subtle thing ever, but it certainly is not he hitting you over the head with terrorism is bad. Okay. And, uh, that's something that a story or a, a film or depiction of a character like this could easily fall into. Yeah. It's totally oh, God. not doing that because well, and there, there have been multiple films about the Jackal and I sort of, I, 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 I would be highly hesitant to ever watch any of them, to be honest. <laughs> As I would. Yeah. I, it's great because you get moments that are juxtaposed, like ones where he's putting in extra bullets into a corpse just for emphasis versus when he's communicating with the leaders of various nations, some of whom he sides with or some of whom he believes to side with him, even though they, they don't condone the extent to which he goes. Um, th- those differences are really important because you can really understand him ideologically and, and then he goes and fucks it up. So I don't know. It's, it's a great film and a great character study. Absolutely. Well, on that note, um, thank you so much, Sean, for coming back and, and talking with us about this about this film. Uh, where can listeners find you and your work online? Uh, for January, my written reviews are going to be appearing at Sound On Sight and TVOverMind.com. Uh, I'll be doing The Americans when that comes back. And right now it's Babylon on Sundance. And soon will be a couple other things. Well, uh, also Banshee. Oh, Banshee. Yeah. Okay, I forget Detail. That. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and to go off of that, yeah, uh, Les and I, uh, who writes for Sound On Sight as well, and Le- Les Chapel, uh, who writes for, writes for Sound On Sight as well, and also at the AV Club, we're co-hosting a weekly podcast for Banshee. So that's airing currently, and so you can check that out at Sound On Sight week to week. And, and also... it's called uh, Under the Hood? Under the Hood, yeah. Very clever. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> How wonderful. And then, uh, and then Randy, uh, Dankovich, also at Sound on Sight and TV Overmind and a bunch of other places. He and I co-host the Mid-Season Replacements where, uh, you know, we talk about, it's just more casual, uh, anything that we've been watching on TV recently. And then we're also doing, uh, one film per week, not necessarily current. So those are lots of places to check you out. Um, thank you so much for coming back. I look forward to our eventual, uh, Avatar or, or Korra. However we do it, I look forward to to ch- chatting about that. But uh, we'll have to get back, have you back on this summer to to uh, give give Simon a little time to catch up and give me a little time to revisit because uh, certainly it's been a fun last season. Uh, last twenty fourteen was a fun year for fans of of animation and certainly for fans of Avatar. So we'll have to have you back on soon. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Sean, again for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. Mm-hmm.